Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, the Florida Department of State presents the Viva Florida 500 initiative. We'll remember Jupiter Inlet in the 1940s. If you could walk across it at low tide, about maybe 14 inches deep, and my brother and I would go across to what is now Jupiter Inlet Beach Colony, but Dad pretty much had the under rule. We don't go across if he wasn't there. And visit the cemetery at Atsana Odiki. When I came here, this place was in a real mess. I mean, that was down. Half a dozen of the, of the stones were knocked over so you could almost couldn't see let alone try to walk in here that and more ahead on florida frontiers the florida department of state is sponsoring the viva florida 500 initiative an attempt to promote activities throughout the state that will celebrate 500 years of florida history in 2013 that year marks the 500th anniversary of when Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's east coast and gave our state its name. At a gathering in Tampa to discuss Viva Florida 500, historians and history enthusiasts from around the state were welcomed by Judge E.J. Salcinas of the 2nd District Court of Appeals. You could not have selected a place that has longer history of connections with Spain and explorers and Spanish culture. It was here, as all of you know, that in the Tampa Bay area they welcomed Pamfilo de Narvaez and his 400 explorers. That was 1528. It was here in the Tampa Bay area that they welcomed Hernando de Soto in 1539. It was here that Father Louis Cancer, coming to evangelize, was killed in 1549. It was here that after Pedro Menéndez de Avilés established St. Augustine, Florida, a fort, a garrison, was placed here in Tampa. The history goes on and on. That's why the mayor is always proud to say Tampa has been welcoming visitors since 1528. As Florida Secretary of State, Kurt Browning is leading the Viva Florida 500 effort. He realizes that while there is much Florida history to celebrate, we must also remember the devastation of Native Americans, the institution of slavery, and other difficult parts of Florida history. As you know, uh, Viva Florida 500 uh, is the initiative that's led by the Florida Department of State. Um, this, this initiative, every day I walk the halls of the Department of State, this initiative gets a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. Uh, it is, uh, it's, it's an incredibly uh, uh, active initiative uh, that we are seeing from all parts of the state uh, being excited about and involved with. 
commemorating the 500th anniversary of Juan Ponce de Leon's arrival in Florida's uh, east coast when he put La Florida uh, on the, uh, the map, uh, the map of Europe, I might add. Uh, but we're very conscious of the fact that Juan Ponce de Leon was not, not the first person uh, to discover Florida. Uh, Florida's first uh, people, probably the Tamuquan tribe, uh, lived here long before uh, the Spanish got here. From the beginning, uh, from the very beginning, the early uh, Spanish explorers, uh, men, women, children, both black and white, uh, relied upon the knowledge gained from their encounters with Native Americans, uh, the Native American Indian people. Certainly the French and the British uh, would also have uh, had uh, early interaction with the Native Americans. Uh, and however, we know that from our history uh, that the relationship between Native Americans and the European settlers was contentious uh, more often than not, and were the, as were the relationships between uh, uh, the different uh, European nations uh, itself. The Viva Florida 500 commemoration is not going to ignore the conflicts uh, that were part of the life of the 16th century, uh, nor uh, will the commemoration focus only on the 16th century. I have to say this, you've probably heard me say it before, when we start talking about the commemoration of Viva Florida 500, I uh, wanted to camp out at 1513. That's where I had planted the flag and I wanted to, to celebrate 1513. That's where we started. And uh, to the, my staff's credit, uh, what we want to do is we want to look at Viva Florida 500 as a commemoration, a celebration of who we are as a state and, and, and what got us uh, where we are, are today. And it was a lot of uh, cultures, a lot of people, uh, a lot of history that, that did that. Um, this is all about um, Florida's history and culture. Uh, our past isn't perfect, but we certainly have countless reasons to be proud uh, as Floridians. Uh, our purpose is to acknowledge and promote our history. We want to learn from that history, uh, and by doing so, learn uh, who we are today while also sharing our history with the rest of the nation as well as the rest of the world. As historians, historic preservationists, and museum personnel have been saying for many years, Florida history is not only important to education, it is a dynamic economic development tool. Kurt Browning. La Florida 500 anniversary is a unique chance to generate tourism, <coughs> certainly stimulate the economy, um, attract new businesses, contribute to the economic vitality of our, and quality of our diverse cultures, as well as our communities, and yes, even create jobs. Create jobs. That is what we are here to do. <coughs> the recent uh, updated study, which is entitled Economic Impacts of Historic Preservation in Florida, revealed that historic preservation created nearly 112,000 jobs in Florida, contributed an estimated $1.3 billion in state, local, and federal tax collections in Florida in 2007 and in 2008. On an annual basis, heritage tourism in, in Florida generates 76,000 jobs and $1.57 billion in income. Additionally, 47% of U.S. residents visiting Florida participate in a history-related activity. In 2010, uh, the United States as a whole saw 15.4 million overseas cultural heritage travelers. That's 71.2% of all tourists who sought uh, cultural or heritage activities. If we showcase Viva Florida the way that I am hopeful that Viva Florida 500 will be showcased, 
Can you imagine what the numbers will look like in 2013? While our history can be used as an economic development tool, it's the content of that history that attracts heritage tourists to our state and stimulates the economy. Secretary of State Browning. Florida is a state of first. As Joe Salcinas has already said, uh, yet much of our incredible history is largely unknown. Uh, we've uh, had the first colony, uh, the French uh, at Fort Caroline. We have the oldest continuous occupied settlement in St. Augustine. We have the first African to come to the continental uh, United States who landed in Juan Ponce de Leon in Florida. The first Christmas was celebrated in Tallahassee by the Europeans. And we were the first to launch rockets that flew people to the moon. We are a state of first. Historians describe Thanksgiving uh, from the early colonial period. And many have identified that first Thanksgiving uh, that occurred here in Florida. Foreign settlers and indigenous uh, native groups shared moments of accomplishments. Uh, in their case, uh, it was the celebration of a safe passage uh, and probably reaching dry land uh, for the former and good harvest certainly for the latter. I would like to use the metaphor of Thanksgiving uh, in our discussion of Viva Florida 500. We should come together as communities and share our resources and stories and enjoy the harvest of our rich uh, heritage and, and history when we certainly commemorate 500 years of our history in 2013. In the last 500 years, Florida has developed into a multicultural society, the multicultural society that we live and play and work in today. In 2013, it's a significant milestone in Florida's history, allowing us to showcase our rich and diverse history and culture, starting, uh, started by Florida's first people and continuing along with the input of the Spanish, the French, the British, and many others. I hope you will join with me uh, wholeheartedly as we bring uh, what is important back to your community, to the table, and plan events and activities accordingly across our state as we approach 2013. At the Viva Florida 500 meeting in Tampa, Dr. Michael Francis from the University of North Florida in Jacksonville discussed educational opportunities provided by the commemoration that begins in 2013. He points out that while a lot of great scholarship exists on many aspects of Florida history, there are also many opportunities for continued research and analysis. If we think of some of the main topics like conquistadors, there's been a fair bit of work done on uh, early exploratory uh, campaigns, but comparatively little when you look at Mexico and some of the other literature for the Americas. Uh, one can talk about soldiers and settlers. I think most residents in St. Augustine would be very surprised to know that in 1600, seven years before Jamestown, uh, St. Augustine was made up of 30% Portuguese. There were a dozen Frenchmen. Uh, there were a couple of crazy Irishmen, including the parish priest who served in the very first parish priest, Irish parish priest, serves in St. Augustine. Uh, there, the principal physician in the 1580s and into the 1590s was a Frenchman. This idea of Florida as a place where people come together begins in 1513. And I think as the judge rightly pointed out, it is not always a pleasant story. There is certainly a great deal of violence, but there's also a great deal of interaction. And I hope we can talk a little bit about that as these uh, and the commemoration uh, moments uh, approach. Africans in La Florida. Here's a chapter of Florida history we still know painfully little about. 
And there are Africans in Florida, uh, just as the judge moment uh, mentioned, from 1513 forward. And I'm going to talk about uh, one of them, I think, as we get closer. Florida's Indian population always, throughout the entire colonial period, outnumbers Europeans. Always. What's the story we're going to tell? What are the stories that we're going to tell about this? And I think this is, again, one of those moments where it presents a real opportunity. Uh, the women of La Florida. <clears throat> it's not a reality show like the wives of Beverly Hills or something of that nature. Uh, but there are a surprising number of women whose voices have not come out in the historical literature who are in Florida, again, from the very beginning. African women. Native American women and European women from multiple uh, ethnic backgrounds. Uh, the Colombian Exchange, what do we really know about food? What do we really know about the transfer of disease, uh, about culture and cultural exchange? Although scholars are anxious to explore all aspects of our state's history, some remain skeptical about how stories will be told during the Viva Florida 500 commemoration. Willie Johns is historian and outreach director for the Seminole Tribe of Florida. You know, just to uh, sit here and just be politically correct, I would be wrong. Because this Viva Floridia, you know, it, it destroyed a whole civilization of people in Florida. And this whole continent. And uh, we, we have to tell the story. And we have to tell the truth. And if we don't tell the truth, then, you know, we become liars. So we have to be real conscious of what we say about Native Americans because there's, what, nine tribes that can't speak for themselves today. More than, More than that. And then there's tribes that were held in the, the fort in St. Augustine that are now back with their loved ones in their country. But to be able to... You know, just say everything's going to be cool and everything's going to be great, hunky-dory, and we're just going to slap the old Spanish boy on the back and say, well done, you know, but it ain't going to happen. And uh, because, it, you know, it, it wrecked our society. And then as the history goes with our people, the Seminoles, you know, we, we're the longest fighting tribe in the southeast, you know, and we fought over 50 years against the United States Army. And we continue to do today and uh, with the state and what have you. So, you know, we're not, I'm, I'm not coming in here with a chip on my shoulder, but, you know, I'm coming in with the diplomacy, you know, and wanting to talk, see how, how it's going to be played out. Because, you know, when there's a red flag, I'm going to be the first one screaming. And I hope you're with me when that flag goes out. FIVA Florida 500, an effort to promote history-related activities throughout the state in 2013, is being coordinated by the Florida Department of State. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.
Established in 1856, the Florida Historical Society is the oldest existing cultural organization in the state, but we are not state-supported. We depend on membership support to provide all of our great educational outreach, like this program. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and click on the Join Now button to receive our journal, The Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, The Society Report, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This moment in Florida history features Spanish colonial historian Susan Parker. Imagine being locked in a stone fortress in St. Augustine with 1,500 other people for 52 days. That was the situation in November 1702, as invading troops from English South Carolina moved in to capture the capital of Spanish Florida. Florida's governor ordered the townspeople of St. Augustine into Castillo de San Marcos to avoid capture and harm. Soon, Carolinians and their artillery surrounded the fort. From inside the fort, the town's residents could see, hear, and smell the fires that their own soldiers set to burn the buildings closest to the fortress. These structures could have offered cover for the English to shoot at Spanish soldiers on the fort's gun deck or pick off messengers leaving the fort. In fact, messengers were able to sneak out of the fort and head west to get help from San Luis in today's Tallahassee. Meanwhile, the people inside the fort waited. Finally, on Christmas Day, 1702, Spanish warships arrived, forcing the English to retreat. The angry losers burned the town. The townspeople emerged to the charred remnants of their homes. Spanish colonial historian Susan Parker this moment in Florida history was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. The story of the Siege of St. Augustine in 1702 is told in the novel Saving Home by Judy Lindquist, available at myfloridahistory.org or as a Kindle ebook from Amazon.com. This is Florida Frontiers. During World War II, Jupiter Inlet was allowed to fill with sand as a protection against German U-boats. As Janie Gould explains, it was shallow when Skip Gladwin and his family moved there in 1947. During World War II, when German U-boats prowled offshore, U.S. officials decided not to keep dredging Jupiter Inlet. Instead, the inlet filled with sand, and that kept out any enemy subs. In 1947, Skip Gladwin and his family moved to Jupiter and rented an old house near the inlet. It's now known as the Deploy House, named for the pioneers who built it in 1898. When Gladwin was growing up, it was just a place to live, and the inlet was shallow enough for wading. You could walk across it at low tide, about maybe 14 inches deep. My brother and I would go across to what is now Jupiter Inlet Beach Colony, but Dad pretty much had the under rule. We don't go across if he wasn't there. We didn't always obey that, but that was the rule. <laughs> there must not have been any boat traffic if it was so shallow. Actually, there was quite a bit of boat traffic, but there were small skiffs that could go out the inlet in the 18 inches when it was high tide. What was it like living in this historic house? It was just a house that was available. It was just an old house. Just an old house, right, and for kids it was simply a lot of fun. There was always a lot of activity because although large boats couldn't go out the inlet, there were literally dozens of small boats around at any one time, so there's always a lot of action around there. The house practically overlooked the inlet. Yeah, I would say it's probably maybe 60 feet or so above sea level, so at that time especially had a full panorama of the ocean and the inlet. Do you remember 
people dredging the inlet after the war? Yeah, that started in 1947, and the dredges ran for months. Actually did some dynamiting to break loose the uh, sandstone and stuff. You could hear the noise going out. They would do it usually early in the morning, and they would just pile these huge piles of sand, which my brother and I would just have a ball climbing up and sliding down. I mean, the, the sand was piled all over the place. That must have been paradise for a kid. You were probably six or eight years old, and getting to play in big mounds of sand? It was, and you know, there was a different ambiance, if you would, about town then, because everybody knew each other. The kids just felt so free to go out and do what they wanted to for long periods of time. The town only had 300 people, that's hard to believe, of Jupiter, which is what, 100,000 now, something like that? Yeah, probably in that neighborhood, especially in the extended Jupiter area. Did you dig around in the dirt around the Pioneer home that you lived in? Yes, we did, especially in the creeks and stuff. My younger brother, Steve, would spend hours and hours doing that, and we have boxes full of pottery that he found. It was just amazing. A lot of it were Flintstones and other obviously things that someone had traded down from probably the Carolinas or something or certainly from Georgia. This was hard stone which you wouldn't find here. How far back do you think some of the things that you found go? Jim Snyder has done a lot of research in his book and he feels that probably at least 5,000 years that there has been people inhabiting the Jupiter Inlet area. It's just a perfect spot for people to live with access to the ocean, plenty of water, and especially the high elevation of the inlet from a security standpoint. When you were a kid and out collecting though, you probably didn't really know the significance of the stuff that you were collecting, but you did know enough to save it. We did save it. I'm somewhat of a saver and my dad was that way too, so, yeah, so thank goodness we did save it. But someday I'll give it to someone who has more expertise than I to really take a look at it. You grew up in Jupiter. You went to school here, just a handful of kids. And West Palm Beach, the uh, county seat, is where you went to high school. I love Jupiter. love everything about it. Always have, always will. I went down to Palm Beach High School the last couple of years of my schooling. And down there, they called Jupiter the armpit of the county, which is what it was known back then. Why'd they call it that? I think because it was so isolated and we were a bunch of hicks. And I guess to some degree, we were hicks. <laughs> Janie Gould prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. At Senna Odi Key was abandoned by settlers when a devastating hurricane struck, but as Bill Dudley reports, their cemetery remained. Now you see all the brickwork here. That's all from the Eberhard Faber Pencil Company, because this is where all the yellow cedar pencils came from. That's why there's not so many cedars anymore. Eric Brogren walks a path through a jungle of green on the island of Atsina Odi just across the water from the town of Cedar Key on Florida's west coast. In the years following the Civil War, this area was home to a flourishing industry harvesting the tall, straight cedars for pencils. David levy Uley's railroad connected Cedar Key to points east, and steamboats sailed from here bound for Havana and New Orleans. By 1884, nearly 300 people lived on the island. But in 1896, Atsina Odi was abandoned in the wake of a devastating hurricane that washed away the homes and the sawmills. J.R. Hudson, aged 38 years, born February 16, 1835. Soon after Brogren, a retired engineer, moved to Cedar Key with his wife, he discovered an old graveyard here, its stones broken by vandals and almost buried amidst a tangle of overgrown palmetto, thorny vines, and the twisted trunks of live oaks. When I came here, this place was in a real mess. I mean, that was down. Half a dozen of the, of the stones were knocked over, so you could, almost couldn't see, let, let alone try to walk in here. 
Brogren took on the task of cleaning up and restoring the cemetery and finding out about its inhabitants. Work begun, he says, out of a sense of respect. There's no religious thing with me or anything like that. I was just raised to respect my elders, and I feel strongly about that. I'm Scandinavian, first generation, and everything is very neat in the cemetery. And I thought, well, if I'm going to call myself not a damn Yankee anymore, I'm going to be a citizen of the South. And this is my contribution. And it's obviously had effect on the local people there. Of the 39 people buried here, only a few were older than 45. One was a 74-year-old Irish immigrant named Mary Corrigan. Several were children. Brogren points to a small stone next to a larger one. The inscription identifies four-month-old William Jones Lewis, born in spring 1884, to Georgia E. Lewis, who died a few days later, age 27. That stone appeared at the museum door one day. We don't know where it came from, but we knew from the burial records that that was his mother. I came over here one day and I probed around in there and I found the base. So now the little guy is laying next to his mother. Eric Brodgren's story brought to mind the kindness of strangers until I realized that none of us is really a stranger to anyone else because in the end we all lie down in the same city. Gainesville poet Lola Haskins is working on a book about Florida's graveyards. Then I thought about Atsina Adi, the island town, and that because its buildings were washed away, this cemetery is basically all that's left. And I was sorry, and that made me want to give something back. So I wrote a poem for which I make no claim, other than that it was sincerely meant. For the villagers in the cemetery at Atsina Adi. You shivered in the heat, and now you lie among palmettos with their sweet white hearts. Brought back from sea you lie enisled, where, when wind screams, reaching land is impossible. You failed in your prime, with your muscles hard from work, or died so small you fit in the palm of your mother's grieving hand. You left the chains that link you to us all, we who were also born, grew, loved, had daughters. We your descendants who have yet to die. O Mary, who came from Ireland to this place with no Gaelic name, O Georgia, with your baby son lying near. When the hurricane came and took your town, know that it left your stones. And know that we remember you, that we row across the lapping waters to your palmettos, your grass to our waists, your nopales with their studded dark red fruits, that we bring you flowers, we your nieces, your nephews, we your grandchildren, by blood or none, that when we lay the blossoms at your feet, we, in some strange way, are home. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. This is Florida Frontiers. The Florida Historical Society is kicking off the Viva Florida 500 celebration with an original courtroom drama called Ponce de Leon Landed Here. In 1513, Ponce de Leon landed on the east coast of Florida and gave our state its name. Throughout 2013, the Florida Historical Society will be commemorating the 500th anniversary of this event in a variety of ways, beginning with a public hearing to settle the ongoing dispute over where exactly Ponce de Leon landed. Was it in St. Augustine, as tradition holds? Was it in Ponce Inlet, which bears his name? 
Perhaps Melbourne Beach, where an historical marker erected by the state indicates the landing may have occurred. Or maybe it was on Jupiter Island, as some historians now claim. Join us as we try to settle this dispute through an informative, educational, and entertaining theatrical presentation. Perhaps even Ponce de Leon himself will testify. Performances of Ponce de Leon Landed Here will be held Saturday, January 5th at 2 p.m. in the Historic Courtroom at the Historical Society of Palm Beach County and Saturday, January 12th at 2 p.m. in the Historic Volusia County Courthouse in DeLand. Both events are free and open to the public, and they will be webcast live at myfloridahistory.org. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join us for the daily conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Happy New Year. I'm Ben Brokmarkle.